Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The nation's first presidential primary, the New Hampshire primary, was held on Tuesday, February 9th. Media attention was focused on New Hampshire, and as a result, many Americans missed a significant story. On that day, the U.S. Supreme Court issued a stay that keeps President Obama's clean power plan from being implemented, at least for the time being. Under the president's plan, states would agree to cut carbon dioxide emissions significantly by the year 2030. So what does Pennsylvania do? Our guest today is Pennsylvania Secretary of the Department of Environmental Protection, John Quigley, Secretary very quickly. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Scott. Good morning. And we're going to be talking about Clean Power Plan, maybe a few other uh, topics a little later in the program, but give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, if you have a question or a comment about the Clean Power Plan. You also can send an email to smarttalk at org. All right, I started in the in- introduction talking about uh, what Pennsylvania does. Let me just put that question to you, Secretary. What will Pennsylvania do? Uh, Pennsylvania will continue its work to plan for eventual compliance with the Clean Power Plan. Uh, It's important to understand that the stay that was issued by the Supreme Court is not a ruling on the merits. Uh, It was basically sent back to a lower court. This was actually the first time the Supreme Court had stepped in in a circumstance like this to to stay the implementation of a federal rule. But but here's really the bottom line. One of the potential outcomes uh, as this process works its way through the courts is if the rule is upheld and the compliance period uh, the compliance deadline of submitting a final plan by 2018 remains intact. If we stop planning, we might have to restart and rush to complete a plan by 2018. So there's a real potential that we could be in a jam if we stopped the planning. But even more fundamentally, when you look at the future, uh, it is abundantly clear and certain that we will need lower carbon and eventually no carbon electricity generation. Uh, We see the cost curves of renewable energy coming down 10% a year. Uh, Solar prices uh, have fallen 10% year over year for for a couple of decades. we see the, the continued predominance of cheap shale gas. The, the early returns, for example, from the Utica shale in Pennsylvania suggest that it's even more productive than the Marcellus. So we're going to see cheap shale gas prices for a long time to come and more uh, electricity generation coming from gas-fired power. And we're going to see continued retirements of coal-fired power plants. So whether or not we have a clean power plant, that is the future. So it just makes good business sense for us to continue to plan for it so that we can maintain the strength of Pennsylvania's energy economy. We're the number one energy exporting state in the country, um, the, the number two power producing state in the country. We have a huge portion of our state's economy that is reliant on the energy sector. If we're going to preserve that strength in our economy, we need to plan for it. So it's just good business. You listed a whole lot of what the plan entails, but I want to ask that specific question. What will the state do specifically to now this doesn't start taking effect even you know supreme court rulings aside to the year 2022 right correct all right so what specifically will pennsylvania do well we have not completed a, a draft plan so i can't tell you uh, with any degree of specificity exactly what provisions will be in the state's plan so 
And so what we are what we are doing though is continuing the conversations with stakeholders. Uh, there's a, a steady parade of electricity generators that come into my office and talk about the implications of the, of the requirements uh, for their particular business. Uh, we hear from a lot of interest groups, renewable energy advocates, uh, uh, energy efficiency advocates, uh, really uh, across the board. We're going to continue with that engagement. Uh, we are, are just completing our involvement in the National Governors Association Policy Academy, where we've been doing some very sophisticated modeling of alternatives. So all of that work is going to continue. Uh, and, and we will not really start drafting a plan plan until the legal picture becomes clear. It's, it's highly unlikely that we would be submitting a final plan to EPA while the stay is still in effect. And just what you said earlier that may surprise some people, it was the first time that a federal rule, what, that the Supreme Court did rule on a federal rule and issued a stay. What uh, There were 27 states that petitioned the Supreme Court against the, the, uh, the Clean Power Plan, and it wasn't necessarily, as you mentioned, the plan itself. What they were, uh, what they were questioning is whether the Environmental Protection Agency has the authority to regulate emissions uh, because the Clean Air Act already does. Okay, that sounds like a lot of legal mumbo-jumbo. Explain a little bit. Well, it, <laughs> what what the action by those 27 states amounts to, essentially, is a last-ditch attempt to stop something that is, that is absolutely necessary for our continued, uh, and it's not an exaggeration, say our continued survival as we know it. Uh, climate disruption is an existential threat uh, to humanity, uh, when you look at, at what is really happening here, uh, the the states that either are governed by uh, the conservative wing of the Republican Party or dominated by fossil fuel interests banded together to try to figure out some way, uh, throw everything at the wall and see what sticks, to stop the implementation of a plan uh, that is eminently sensible, that will actually save consumers money, that will protect public health. Uh, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But you said yourself that uh, the the court did not rule on the, the the you know what is in the rules themselves. What it did what it did rule on is, uh, and at least issued a stay. And I understand that there are going to be other hearings starting in June. But what they did rule on is this Clean Air Act of whether the Clean Air Act regulates what states can do. You don't see it that way. No, all the Supreme Court did was stay the implementation of the rule. They did not rule on the merits. They did not rule on anything uh, with regard to the specifics of, of the plan or, or any legality or illegality. All they did was put, put it on pause until the lower court hears all of the legal challenges. Mm -hmm. Now, you said that uh, you know we, we don't have a final plan, obviously, that uh, you still have a lot of work to do on this. But what would you like to see? What would the, the Wolf administration like to see as far as ways to cut emissions? Well, I think there's a number of ways to cut emissions, but here's probably the most important point. In the last seven years, Pennsylvania's carbon dioxide emissions have already fallen 20 percent. Uh, the, the Clean Power Plan would require Pennsylvania to reduce its CO2 emissions by 33% by the year 2030. But we've already reduced our CO2 emissions by 20% in the last seven years because of three factors. First, the Great Recession. Secondly, the mercury air toxics rule, which was a federal rule that reduced the amount of neurotoxins emitted by coal-fired power plants uh, by regulation, and that caused some of the, the dirtiest plants uh, to shut down. And then the third thing, and I think the, the most predominant impact, has been cheap shale gas. Uh, we are seeing uh, a large number of permit 
applications for natural gas-fired electricity generation in Pennsylvania. They're springing up all over the state. And, and if there is a war on coal, natural gas is waging it, and natural gas is winning. Uh, so we, what the governor wants to see is a plan that maintains the state's energy economy. Uh, and in the early years of the Clean Power Plan, our compliance, frankly, will be easy. As I said, our, our CO2 emissions have fallen 20%. The, the first rate that we have got to achieve in 2022 is that Pennsylvania can emit no more than 106 million tons of CO2. As we sit here today, Pennsylvania is emitting 107 million tons. So business as usual gets us into compliance. Just what is happening in the market right now gets us into compliance in the early years of the Clean Power Plan, uh, where it will start to pinch probably is after the year 2025. But uh, so we, we, we want to see the market forces play out. Uh, we want to make sure that Pennsylvania's plan includes a, a strong role for energy efficiency, for renewable energy. Uh, the renewable energy sector is the fastest growing sector in our economy. Uh, in, in fact, there are, there are more folks employed in the solar industry right now than there are uh, in the coal industry in the United States. About 174,000 folks work in the solar industry in the United States. The governor wants us to get in on that action. And, and create a, a sustainable renewable energy economy, a high-growth renewable energy economy in Pennsylvania as part of our compliance. At the same time, he wants to make sure that there is a continued role for all of Pennsylvania's indigenous energy resources. Uh, even in uh, the Energy Information Administration's modeling of the next 20, 30 years of, of the electricity grid, they're suggesting that about 40% of the nation's electricity is still going to come from coal. So it's not like coal is going away. Uh, the, the trick for Pennsylvania is to make sure that we have a plan that is designed for us, by us, in a way that makes sure that we maintain the strength of our state's energy economy. Okay, but I want you to clarify, if you would, because earlier you talked about eventually that coal would be phased out. But you, you basically, I mean, you, you said that, as you, we all know, that Pennsylvania is a coal-producing state. Uh, we have thousands of jobs, nowhere near what we used to in the, in the coal industry. But that has been one of the criticisms of this plan is that it would hurt that coal industry. It would basically kill it. Now, you said that natural gas is, is what's killing the coal industry. But what role does coal play in Pennsylvania being a coal-producing state? <laughs> Pennsylvania, about th a little bit less than 40% of Pennsylvania's electricity is currently coming from coal-fired generation. Under the Clean Power Plan, by 2030, that number will not fall very significantly. Uh, coal will remain a major player and a, a major provider of electricity generation in Pennsylvania under the Clean Power Plan. Uh, what the science of climate disruption says is that over the long term, uh, we have to reduce our uh, carbon dioxide emissions by at least at least 80% by the middle of the century. Uh, so that's 20 years after the, the last compliance period of the Clean Power Plan. So over time, we have to continue to reduce our carbon dioxide emissions. And there are ways to do that that will allow the continued viability of coal. Uh, the nation needs to make a strong push for carbon capture and storage and carbon capture and utilization technology. Explain uh, that, if you will. That is technology that would capture the CO2 that would be emitted from coal-fired power plants and either store it underground safely and securely or make stuff out of it. 
Uh, carbon dioxide can be used to make pharmaceutical-grade chemicals. It's it's in the soda in the soda pop or the pop that we we all drink. Uh, there are a variety of industrial uses for CO2, even enhanced oil recovery, perhaps even advanced gas recovery in depleted reservoirs. Uh, what we need in in the country is a, a real concerted effort uh, to use this current waste product CO2 as a resource. And the governor would like Pennsylvania to be at the forefront of that. Uh, in the Rendell administration, we did, I think, some of the nation's leading work on carbon sequestration, carbon storage underground. Uh, we want to dust that work off and attract some federal resources and perhaps some private capital to drive that forward. And, and we are in conversations right now uh, with a variety of companies and with the federal government about the possibility of uh, creating a, a hub of uh, research and early deployment on carbon utilization. And that's more of an aspiration right now. Uh, we're a long way from putting steel on the ground, but we think there's an opportunity for Pennsylvania to create jobs and drive uh, the national conversation about carbon utilization and carbon storage, which is the long-term uh, hope, I think, for coal. So. In that area, you're on the side of the coal industry. Absolutely. Because, Absolutely. I mean, that's that's one. Sequestration is one of the first things I hear uh, people in the coal industry mention. Right. And and that it's kind of the holy grail. Uh, again, we did some of the nation's leading work on this in the Dell administration. Uh, the, the, the knock and the problem with uh, carbon capture is that it's very expensive. Uh, there's a big energy penalty. In other words, a, a big portion of the plant's output is needed to run the equipment that would capture and compress the CO2 emissions. We've got to find ways to do it in a more expensive, more inex less expensive manner. And the work that we did looked at uh, the idea of carbon networks, of retrofitting a number of coal-fired power plants, utilizing a, a, um, a common set of pipes and a common storage area to capture economies of scale. And, and that early work suggested uh, l very much lower uh, prices of carbon capture than had been published anywhere in the world at the time. And in fact, uh, in the UK, they have ad adopted that model of carbon networks, and they're using it to try to propel the technology forward. So I think there's a, a lot of uh, opportunity uh, to continue this work. The, the governor is very interested and focused on that. And as I said, we're in uh, some ongoing conversations uh, with Washington about perhaps getting some help. Let's take uh, a call from Joy. Joy, you're on the air. Hi, thank you. Uh, Secretary Quigley, thank you so much for uh, continuing the work on this, you know, most important problem, um, despite what the Supreme Court is trying to do. Um, I have, so I'm uh, basically like what's in the Clean Power Plan and hope that we'll have a really strong plan in Pennsylvania. Um, I do have a concern, though, about um, what EPA, and I'm, and I'm afraid Pennsylvania leans towards looking at burning uh, wood, biomass, and calling it carbon neutral or clean energy. Now, I'm not talking about burning wood in fireplaces. That's fine. I'm talking about industrial power plants. So the, the argument that people say, well, you know, if we burn wood, it releases carbon dioxide, but we can replant trees, and when they grow up in 70 or 80 years, they'll capture that carbon dioxide. But I, I think as we know at this point, we don't have 70 to 80 years to wait. When we burn wood, we release all of that carbon dioxide immediately. Burning wood is inefficient. It burns a low temperature. Uh, there's always moisture in it. And it actually is uh, more polluting than coal, uh, which surprises a lot of people. So I hey. would love to hear your thoughts on that and hoping that we can 
not treat by burning wood and biomass as clean energy in Pennsylvania. Joy, thank you very much for your call. Yeah, yeah thanks, Joy. Appreciate the appreciate the question. Uh, I, I I will say that I agree with you. Uh, first of all, I, forests are not fuel. And, and the idea of cutting down uh, forests to fuel or coal-fire uh, in coal-fired power plants, to me, makes absolutely no sense. And again, the, the, the timelines don't match up. Uh, a mature forest takes about seven or eight decades uh, to grow. And, and really, uh, when you look at the amount of, of CO2 that would be released in, by burning biomass, uh, clearly that, that doesn't match up. There are some possibilities in, in what I will call niche markets for fast-growing uh, woody biomass crops like hybrid poplar and maybe even some certain, force, uh, certain kinds of switchgrass that grow very quickly, grow deep roots, sequester a lot of carbon. That might pencil out in some limited cases, but not necessarily at, at uh, utility scale. So it's something I think needs a little bit more research. The, the data that I have seen uh, suggests certainly uh, that uh, the the suggestion that just burning wood is, is carbon neutral, even carbon negative energy, is, is pretty facile and doesn't withstand uh, scrutiny. I know Penn State's doing a lot of research on biomass. Yes. Penn yeah. State's doing some great work on biomass. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. Our guest today is Pennsylvania Secretary of the Department of Environmental Protection, John Quigley. We're talking about the state's uh, plans for the Clean Power Plan. The Supreme Court issued a stay uh, in February, but uh, Pennsylvania's going ahead anyway. We have a, a, a open lines right now. If you have a question or a comment, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can go on WITF's Facebook page and leave a question or a comment. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. Let's take a call from Mitch, who is in York County. Mitch, you're on the air. Good morning. Thank you, Secretary Quigley, for the comments. This is Mitch Hescox calling in. Two weeks ago, the governor announced a plan of joining together with 17 other governors to promote clean energy. And I'd like to ask you, how is that going to fit into the Clean Power Plan? And do you have any details on how the government's going to join in with those 17 governors to promote clean energy in Pennsylvania? All right. Thank you, Mitch, for your call. Yes. Hi, Mitch. Uh, thanks for the question. Uh, the governor has joined with uh, 16 other governors, uh, and this is a bipartisan group of governors, both Republicans and Democrats, to really chart a clean energy future, uh, not only in electricity generation, but in the resiliency of the electricity grid in our transportation system. It's all about smart, business-oriented planning to take advantage of economic opportunities and create a, a cleaner economy at the same time. Uh, we're just in the process of scheduling the first in-person meeting, so we have a framework that's on paper uh, and some aspirational goals, but now we're, we are set to get to work on actually implementing, uh, implementing work towards these goals and how we can work together, uh, again, economies of scale, aligning policies uh, to really drive investment and, and, and give... Uh, messages and, and incentives to the market uh, to respond. It, it's a really exciting concept, and the uh, governor has been a leader in that effort and uh, certainly appreciate the vision uh, that went into that. I, I think that uh, the governor's accord for a new energy future will be an adjunct and a complement to the work that we do on the Clean Power Plan. Uh, as I mentioned, in the early years, it, business as usual gets us there, uh, and, and it is uh, not a tremendously ambitious target for us to achieve a 33% reduction by the year 2030. So what we have always envisioned here is a plan that meets the four squares of the Clean Power Plan and then a companion document of the should-dos. 
uh, the additional steps that we should take as a commonwealth uh, to advance the clean energy economy, to capture all the public health benefits that attend to a cleaner economy, and, and to really drive investment, create jobs, and, and do some smart work. Uh, for example, our Act 129 energy efficiency law, a lot of juice left to squeeze out of that. I think with some, some tweaks, uh, we can uh, advance the cause of energy efficiency very significantly. Uh, there is all kinds of opportunity in, in smart building codes to reduce energy consumption in the built environment and, and therefore reduce emissions that will save building owners and businesses money. So we've got to look for those opportunities as well. So that's why I think we're going to have a list of should-dos as well as must-dos. And I, I think the, the governor's accord for new energy future will fit extremely well into that construct. Now, as we've been discussing, you said that the Pennsylvania and Wolf administration is planning on moving ahead on the clean power plan. Uh, but there are, and there is a but, uh, there are a lot of people in this state who opposed the plan, didn't want to see it implemented in the first place because of those coal jobs, some of the other fossil fuels industries, and people who said that it would hurt this, this state economically. Hmm. I mean, how can you move ahead if there is that opposition out there? Well, again, we are moving ahead on the planning. We we're not submitting. You're not a, implementing yet. Yeah, we're not implementing. We're we're the the real the next hurdle for us is to submit a final plan, and that won't happen until the stay is lifted, and that that presumes that the the rule is ultimately upheld. So, as I said, it just makes it makes sense, and it's smart business to continue to plan for the inevitable energy future. Uh, whether or not there is a clean power plan, we are going to see again cheap shale gas, uh, cheaper renewables, and coal retirements. That's going to happen regardless of whether we have a clean power plan or not. So it makes sense for us to get ahead of that and to plan for it and make sure that we take advantage of the economic opportunities and be able to respond to the economic dislocations. I think that's a very important part of the conversation. There are sections of the state's energy economy and, and people, real people, uh, whose lives are going to be impacted by a transition to a, a cleaner energy future. And we need to pay attention to the impacts that it's going to have on those folks. I mean, I was out in Greene County uh, last year in, in one of our listening sessions, and I, I sat in a room full of members of the United Mine Workers. And I get it. Now, my grandfather was a miner. My, I had two uncles that were miners. Really? Uncle, I didn't know that. Uncle Joe, in, in the anthracite industry, Uncle Joe died a black lung, and Uncle Leo lost a leg in the mines. So I get it. I, I'm from coal country, and I understand it's part of the culture. It's certainly a huge part of the economy in southwest Pennsylvania in particular. And where there is going to be disproportionate economic impact, we have an obligation, I think, uh, to make sure that we direct some special attention uh, to those communities. So, again, that's part of the should-dos uh, that we need to be thinking about as part of this plan, which is another reason why it's so important that we continue the planning work. It's not just checking boxes to, to file a plan that, that meets certain federal requirements. It's about charting a new energy future for Pennsylvania and paying attention not only to the opportunities and the new jobs and the shiny new objects, but taking care of the, the legacy industry, the, the workers that help build this state's economy, uh, that literally risk their lives every day in the mines, uh, I know that too well from my experience here at DEP. So we have to be thinking about economic uh, dislocation and, and economic restructuring for those communities as well. Those, that's part of the plan. Those economic, opportun uh, economic opportunities you're talking about, 
What in particular are you talking about? I mean, I, I saw a figure that said that uh, uh, if Pennsylvania implemented the clean power plan, that we'd be looking at 5,000 new jobs. What are you talking about? Well, I, I think that's a, a very, very gross underestimate. Uh, just Let's just take a look at, at the solar industry in this country. Uh, in 2014, the solar industry employed about 174,000 Americans. Uh, they added 31,000 jobs in the year from 2013 to 2014. That was a 22% growth rate when the rest of the economy was growing at about 1%. So the fastest growing segment of our nation's economy happens to be renewable energy. We need to get in on that. Uh, our alternative energy standard was passed in, in 2004. It has been updated in 12 years. It's, it's time to be updated. Uh, we're, we've fallen behind the rest of the country in our ability to attract renewable energy jobs. Uh, we need to get into the high-growth, high-tech uh, end of the economy, and, and that clearly is renewables. It's energy efficiency. There's huge opportunities in battery storage technology. I know there's a couple of companies in Pittsburgh uh, that are working on this next generation of, of uh, electricity storage. Again, huge economic opportunities in that segment of the economy that we need to take advantage of. Secretary Quigley, let me push back for just a moment because there are people out there who have, would say that we've been hearing this for some time now, that uh, this is the next great energy economic opportunity for Pennsylvania and really uh, across the country. But it hasn't happened, and part of the reason is that I hear so many people say, oh, I'd love to heat my home with solar or use uh, solar for my energy in my home, but it costs too much to get it done. And that's even with some tax credits on top of it. Mm -hmm. So unless you have those customers who are going to use the technology, you still have a problem. Well, there's a couple of things, and, and that's a, a complex, it requires a complex answer to what, to what seems like a simple question. Uh, we are in a transition period, uh, and it's, it's, it's very clear uh, that the, the future is in renewable energy. Uh, there was a study put out in September of last year by the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, which is uh, affiliated with the U.S. Department of Energy, that found that utility-scale solar is now cost-competitive with natural gas. And obviously, natural gas is beating the pants off coal right now in the marketplace. And according to the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, utility-scale solar is now cost competitive. And, and that is where the market is moving in terms of investment in utility-grade generation. So it's uh, not on the, 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 the individual customer heating their home. There are, right now, uh, house-scale solar. You know, this rooftop solar is actually grid parity in the Pico Service Territory in Pennsylvania. Again, folks have to invest. I mean, the, the hurdle has been that if you want to invest in solar, you've got to go to the bank and take a loan out. And so far, because this is, again, relatively new technology, uh, banks have shied away. So where public policy needs to go is to find the levers to attract private capital. Uh, I, I think the, the holy grail for alternative energy is that it needs to be subsidy-free. Uh, we need to get it to a place where banks invest in, in these projects for homeowners and businesses as a matter of course because the, the economics are self-supporting. Uh, the market is extremely distorted right now. There are, while there are some relatively small subsidies for alternative energy, if you compared those subsidies to the ones that we are providing, uh, both explicit and implicit for fossil fuels, there's no comparison. Okay, so subsidy-free. I, I did yeah. want you to clarify yes. that. Yes, we, we, we need to get to a level playing field for all sources of energy, and, and the market is wildly 
distorted right now. But time is on the side of renewables. There's no question about that when you look at the objective data. Uh, the future is clean energy, and there is a tremendous economic growth opportunity in that. All right, let's take some phone calls here. Speaking of uh, solar, John in Mechanicsburg has a question or a comment. John, you're on the air. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Um, I, I had solar installed on my roof last year. Um, it was an 11.3 kilowatt hour grid. Um, it was sizable. And uh, my son, who's in the solar business in California, um, did the financial engineering, and I had a break-even point of about seven or eight years. Then um, um, we learned that uh, the panels and the inverters were subject to PA state tax of 6%. And on top of that, um, when my uh, um, tax bill came, they had decreased my um, value of my home to the point where uh, about a third of my savings were going to be paid in county tax. So um, in the end, um, still, even with the 30% tax credit that I'm going to receive from the government, it's going to be a losing proposition because the uh, state, and the local governments have their hand out, and they want a part of it. And um, my feeling is that the state is uh, rather hostile towards rooftop um, solar. And if I had to do it again, I probably wouldn't, even at a lower price point, because uh, uh, I don't I don't feel like I want to subsidize the state, state while um, the government, federal government's giving me money to to help me. You guys are trying to take it right back. Hey, John, thank you very much for your call. Uh, it sounds like uh, a reason not to be motivated to do it, but what about his story? Well, John raises some good points. Uh, and again, in, in the marketplace, sales tax applies to just about everything. So again, we've got to get to the point where this pencils out every case, every time. And, and as John very rightly points out, Pennsylvania is not necessarily friendly to solar energy. Uh, the Pennsylvania Public Utility Commission just a couple of weeks ago uh, came out with a net metering ruling that capped the amount of uh, power that can be sold back into the grid by residential owners of solar panels. Uh, that That is not uh, something that would encourage uh, investment in solar. Uh, so we are we are not quite where we need to be, whether it's public policy, whether it's the, the economics in many uh, uh, service territories, uh, where Solar investments uh, will pencil out every single time. But conversely, there are places in Pennsylvania like the Pico Service Territory where solar just makes sense and wins uh, hands down. Uh, there are companies like Solar City that are investing literally hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars over time uh, for the deployment of rooftop solar. So there is a change that we are in the middle of. And in these transitions, you have situations like John has encountered. Uh, but over the long term, I, I think the answer is going to be uh, found in in better public policy, some refinements in uh, the rules of the road, and then with the continued uh, reduction in costs of the, these facilities. Again, solar energy, the cost has fallen 70 percent since 2009. And that's going to continue. So over time, I, I think 
the, the experiences that John has talked about here this morning will probably be the exception rather than the rule. Pico, the old Philadelphia lecture, so it's the southeastern part of the state. What's different there than in other areas of the state? Their rates are a little bit higher, for one, so the economics are a little bit different. Uh, and uh, the Solar City has a presence uh, in southeastern Pennsylvania that is strong, so they have a market position and they have the infrastructure available to uh, to achieve low-cost deployment. Uh, so a variety of factors. All right, let's take another phone call from Michael and Glenrock. Uh, Michael, you're on the air. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, you're um, welcome. The Secretary mentioned that if we uh, continue business as usual, we should be able to meet our carbon emission goals for mid-century. Um, but I think that assumes that there that the life cycle, carbon life cycle uh, emissions of natural gas are better than that of coal. But a DOE report in 2012 alluded to the fact that the upstream costs of natural carbon, that is, the cost it takes to actually extract the natural gas and distribute it and all, um, are actually can be more than coal. So, uh, number one, uh, how, how can we get to a business as usual uh, uh, assessment of uh, being able to meet our carbon emission goals when there hasn't really been a comprehensive end-to-end carbon life cycle assessment of natural gas. And secondly, um, the Secretary mentioned uh, transportation, which is really important. I was wondering what the state's plans for things like high-speed rail are, uh, since the state really doesn't have a robust rail system. Thank you. Thank you very much for your call, Michael. Hi, Michael. Uh, Great questions. Uh, Let me talk about the transportation aspect first. Uh, You asked about high-speed rail. Uh, In the early days of the Wolf administration, we actually looked at not, not we at DEP, but the administration actually looked at uh, the, the cost of high-speed rail between Harrisburg and Pittsburgh. And the number came in, it was kind of a little bit more than a back of the envelope, but it, it was not certainly an engineering estimate. Uh, that tab came in about $30 billion. Now, the state, so about what our state budget is. Well, about, yeah, exactly. About what the current if annual, if we had one, yeah. uh, the current annual state budget. So, and, and there has been a retreat, not only in Pennsylvania, but uh, in this country, uh, a retreat from major public investments, major public works projects. Uh, so the sticker shock of that uh, caused us to, to, to shelve the idea of exploring that concept any further. But that just gives you an idea of the magnitude uh, of uh, the costs of things like high-speed rail. But but can I interrupt for just one second? How do other states afford that? You're right. Nobody else is doing it. Well, but it doesn't... I mean, there are cert- certain places across the country that that have some high-speed rail that may not be what we had envisioned 30 years ago with being coast-to-coast like Japan or you know some of the other Asian countries. But, uh, I mean, there are pockets out there that have some high-speed rail, or at least light rail, uh, something like that. How do they afford it? Well, they they probably got some heavy investment from the federal government, and there's been a retreat there as well. Uh, Certainly, uh, lately, the political climate uh, is is kind of trending toward anything that we can do to get away from uh, spending public dollars on much of anything. Uh, and, and that is self-defeating, in, in my estimation. When you look at, at the deterioration of our infrastructure uh, nationwide, uh, something that actually Governor Rendell uh, took up the cause after he left office, when you look at the state of our national infrastructure, it, it, there is a crying need for some major investment that will actually stimulate economic growth. Uh, but we're not there yet, and the political climate is, is not really uh, allowing for it. But I, I want to answer M- Michael's second uh, question, and that has to do with uh, the, the life cycle of uh, natural gas fire power. Uh, again, CO, uh, natural gas is 
is 50% cleaner than coal when you burn it for electricity generation. But there are emissions associated with, the, with, with drilling, with transmission. And that's why uh, earlier this year, Governor Wolf announced uh, a set of nation-leading controls on methane emissions. Uh, methane, depending on, on what time period you measure it, is either 34 or 84 times more potent than CO2 as a greenhouse gas. Uh, so when you talk about CO2 equivalencies, that's really where the, the full life cycle accounting comes in. And, and we have put forward a plan to subject all new sources of methane emissions to best available technology and very stringent leak detection and repair, and then place existing sources under the same requirements uh, when they are upgraded or replaced. So uh, all things considered, I think they are the uh, they are the most stringent controls on methane emissions in the country. We've just taken those concepts to our Air Quality Technical Advisory Committee in the last couple of weeks. Uh, there will be extensive public involvement and, and I really welcome and encourage everybody to pay attention and participate in that process so that we can make sure that we are reducing Pennsylvania's methane emissions and therefore the carbon footprint of natural gas to, to the absolute minimum. Is Michael right, though, that uh, there has not been comprehensive research into this? Well, I, I will say that I have seen studies that estimate, and there's, there's all kinds of studies all the time, and it's a full-time job just to keep up with the research. But there have been estimates uh, that, that vary, really, in, in terms of their results. Uh, but I think that question has been looked at. It's a valid point. He has an absolutely valid point that we have to look at the life cycle of all sources of energy. There, there's some that criticize uh, solar power because it requires mining of rare earth metals, and, and that has an environmental impact. So it, it's all in how you look at it, and, and I think we have to look at things holistically. So Mike makes a good point. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest today is Pennsylvania Secretary of the Department of Environmental Protection, John Quigley. We're talking about the Clean Power Plan. Actually, a lot of other questions coming in, too. 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. All right, let's uh, go to Mike in York. Mike, you're on the air. Yes, good morning. Good morning. Um, I would like to address the secretary, um, and this has to do with uh, the lady's comment earlier that she talked about wood burning in Pennsylvania. Um, and one of the, uh, this is a little off topic, but it is also connected directly with pollution because I think probably everybody there in the studio has been by some place where somebody's burning wood to heat their house, and uh, it doesn't smell like a sweet smell of wood, like if you have a campfire outside in the summer, and you know, it has that nice, sweet, aromatic smell of, let's say, cedar or oak. But what they're doing is, and it probably is their ignorance or their laziness, is they're choking that fire down and not feeding enough air. And what they're doing is actually uh, choking the wood, so it's actually creating a lot of creosote, which is a flammable volatile, okay, and it's part of their fuel. And uh, so that's condensing into the chimney, and then they're just belching that smoke out to the neighborhood. Uh, I'm involved in an organization called the Masonry Heater Association, and uh, it is the goal of the Masonry Heater Association to build efficient masonry heaters that are wood-fired, and they use these in Europe all the time. And uh, to give you an idea, they're burned twice a day, usually once in the morning and once in the evening, and um, a good drywall bucket of wood will actually heat the house during that cycle because what it does, it heats up uh, two-plus tons of masonry, and then that, again, emits into the room. Uh, this 
gets so hot inside, it burns uh, 1,400, 1,500 degrees, and it actually uh, burns the carbon monoxide, which is actually a flammable gas in those high temperatures. So, um, so Mike, what's your, what's your question for the secretary? Okay, what we need to do is um, we need to have a regulation on what's called firewood, which many times is not firewood, and regulation on unregulated, non-EPA-compliant wood stoves and what is called these backyard wood furnaces, which are actually boilers. Um, there's a place down here in Felton, for example. You go down there, I went by there the other day, and it was calm, and the whole valley in there is, there's a pall over it like it's a fog, and it's just from one uh, person huh. not burning the wood properly. Wow. And that's what needs to be addressed. And that's, that's immediate air pollution All in right. the local vicinity. All right, Mike, thank you very much for your call. Secretary? Well, Mike, interesting question. I mean, all pollution ultimately is local. And uh, I think what we would need to take a look at this is not only what existing air regulations we have on on the, on the table, but also we probably need some data on how many of these units are out there, uh, what the, the scale of the problem is. As anyone who is familiar with DEP knows, it's not the easiest thing in the world to pass a regulation in this state. Uh, and to say we need a regulation uh, really is the start of a very long uh, couple year plus conversation uh, but he raised a good point and it's something that we should look into we have an email from Laura in Mifflinburg says uh, she met an engineer who uh, said that he's bringing one of six new power plants online north of Williamsport she wanted to know where they are and who is opening them and uh, I guess my question follow up on that are what uh, is firing those plants what's uh, fueling those plants well uh, as far as I know all of the new uh, electricity generating uh, facilities that are in some stage of permitting in, in Pennsylvania, and there's probably at least a dozen, uh, maybe more. Uh, I haven't looked at the list lately. They're all natural gas fired. Uh, so we're, we're seeing a, a tremendous amount of investment in these facilities in Pennsylvania, again, taking advantage of cheap and abundant uh, shale gas, uh, which is likely to be with us for a long time to come. Uh, so it is a wave of the future when it comes to uh, energy generation. Uh, and, and interestingly, the more natural gas-fired power that we have, the, the more flexible the grid is and the more renewable energy that it can accommodate. In fact, the, the Pennsylvania, Jersey, Maryland, the PJM grid did a study about three years ago and said that currently the, the grid was flexible enough to allow for about 30% renewable energy. Uh, we're less than 5% now, so there's tremendous growth opportunity. And, and with these new natural gas-fired facilities coming online, that allows for additional flexibility to accept additional renewable energy. But I, I will say that one really interesting result of our modeling uh, runs so far suggests that there's a direct and positive relationship between coal fire generation and renewables. Uh, the, some of the modeling results are showing us that the more renewables that are coming online, the more the baseload coal fire power plants will run. Uh, that that's a concept that we've talked about with uh, some representatives of the Pennsylvania Coal Association. It was kind of difficult for them to accept. It's a little bit counterintuitive, but it's a long way of saying that the energy generating and transmission system uh, in Pennsylvania and in the region is very complex, and and sometimes the results are counterintuitive, and and that's just another reason why it is critically important that Pennsylvania continue its planning work at a reasonable pace to really understand all of the nuances, uh, all of the opportunities that this changing energy, energy landscape presents for Pennsylvania. Bill is in Kutztown. Bill, you're on the air. Hello, Bill. All Hello. Right. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. Well, maybe oh. this isn't Bill. Is this Charles? 
Yes, it is. Okay, Charles, go ahead. Okay, how you doing? How you doing, Scott? Doing well. Um, what I was asking, I don't know if the question has come up yet, but it, it, um, it hasn't. Go ahead. Uh, as far as nuclear energy, um, I know always comes up. Um, I want to know what about investing in nuclear energy. People don't like it, but as far as clean air goes, and as far as lasting energy, it is. It is actually an option. So I wanted to ask the secretary: Is there any um, investment going into nuclear energy, or maybe smaller power plants? I know Pennsylvania's had a history with you know, nuclear energy, but maybe smaller nuclear plants that could be more mobile, but still kick out more energy and more um, more clean energy, more efficient. Charles, thank you very much for your call. He anticipated one of my questions. I noticed that you didn't mention nuclear. What about nuclear? Well, Charles, great question. Uh, Nuclear-fired power, uh, nuclear-fueled power, is currently providing about 95% of the carbon-free energy generation in Pennsylvania. Uh, The continued viability of Pennsylvania's nuclear fleet, and I think we're the number three state in the country, two or three state in the country, for nuclear generation, uh, their continued viability is critically important. Again, it's carbon-free energy. Uh, where the the market is going, there there certainly hasn't been any meaningful investment in uh, new nuclear power construction. It is very expensive. Um, building the plants, building the plants, uh, and and to some extent operating the plants is a very expensive proposition. As far as the more modular kinds of technologies, they're in the offing. Uh, there is a lot of research and development going on. Lots of papers being written about the the potential of these uh, modular nuclear facilities, but we're not there yet either. Uh, And again, as as the energy landscape unfolds over time, there is a good possibility that some of these kinds of facilities could be in the mix. You mentioned earlier, uh, you pointed to uh, England and Great Britain uh, with carbon sequestration and some of the ways that they're looking into it, uh, and carbon storage. When I think of nuclear, I think of one of the big issues, not only the cost, but also the storage of the waste, what to do with the waste. But at the same time, when you're pointing to England as an example of where they're, they're trying to work with uh, capture, capturing uh, carbon, France is also pointed to as a country that uses nuclear, I don't know if I'd say exclusively, but it's a huge part of the, their their energy. So what's different in France than here in the United States? Well, what is different here in the United States is a a political problem uh, that needs to be dealt with. Where do we store the waste? Uh, We're still essentially storing all of the nuclear waste from all the nuclear power plants on site in pools. Uh, You can only do that for so long. And and there is a day of reckoning coming. uh, And and it's really it's a political question that needs to be wrestled with in terms of storage. Uh, In the longer term, there are some emerging nuclear technologies, molten salt uh, reactors, for example, uh, that actually result in much shorter lived waste. Uh, reduces the waste problem. Actually, some facilities can actually use spent nuclear fuel uh, as fuel for their processes. So there's all kinds of uh, work being done on advanced nuclear technologies that's really way above my pay grade and and comprehension. But when you look at the magnitude of the challenge of climate disruption, uh, and the the universally accepted standard is that we have to reduce our CO2 emissions 80% by 2050 to stay under 2 degrees centigrade warming globally. There is a lot of work that suggests that that 2 degrees centigrade warming is dangerously high. So where we actually need to be is carbon-free 
maybe by the end of this century, if not sooner. And we are we will need all hands on deck and all kinds of technologies uh, to get us there. Uh, to suggest that it's it's going to be all renewables, uh, really the, the math doesn't work. Uh, so I think we're going to need to look at a mix of technologies, and it's I, I think inevitable that nuclear is going to have to be part of the consideration. Secretary, we only have about four minutes left, and I want to switch topics for, on you for a, f- a few minutes. You uh, chaired one of the largest uh, task force known to the, in the history of mankind yes. on uh, pipelines in uh, Pennsylvania. And you put out a report uh, recently about the recommendations. We all know that natural gas prices down, production is down right now. We're talking a lot about natural gas during this program. And, the, and many people have said the only way that uh, natural gas is going to make a comeback, not the only way, one of the ways, is constructing pipelines that we can move it around. What were some of the recommendations, quickly? Well, the the world's largest task force, <laughs> uh, the governor's task force, was actually composed of 48 individuals and then a, an additional 110 folks on work groups. So a, a total of over 150 people were involved in this effort. Uh, came up with 184 recommendations uh, on best practices. And some of them range from essentially reiterating some requirements that are currently in law, which in my view are okay because just because it's on the books doesn't mean it's observed uh, as just a a casual perusal of our enforcement actions on pipeline development will attest. Uh, So so a reiteration of some some current requirements to some larger and much more ambitious recommendations on, for example, giving local municipalities uh, the ability to regulate this development in in some respect. Uh, it, uh, It was a very robust document and it was really the start of a conversation about how to do responsible pipeline development. That was what the governor wanted when he convened the group is we, we're, we're facing a wave of infrastructure development that could have that is going to have huge environmental and community impacts. We got to get ahead of it and, and create best practices. So we have 184 recommendations which now we have to work through and evaluate. About 94 of the 184 recommendations had something to do with DEP so we have created an internal work group to evaluate every single one of those 94 recommendations for possible implementation. We have two minutes left, and I have a third topic to go on to. And uh, just this week, you testified at a budget hearing, and uh, you were grilled about uh, some positions at uh, DEP that have not been filled. If I'm correct here, like 200. Why not? Well, we have we have been in a relentless uh, re- regime of budget cutting really since 2009 and the Great Recession. Uh, and over the last 10 years, DEP lost 14% of its complement. Because we do not have a 15-, 16-year budget passed, and the General Assembly has not passed the supplemental appropriations that the governor has proposed, uh, we are forced to put uh, about 224 positions into a complement management system that we have to very carefully evaluate uh, whether or not there's enough money in our budget to fill those positions, and we're doing that right now. But as some of uh, the legislators pointed out, uh, some of that money comes from the federal government and not from the general fund of the state. So if there's money coming from the federal government to pay for those positions, why not hire? Well, we actually are in we're in the process of a series of, of, of meetings and developing the business case to do, in fact, that. Uh, this this was a complement management program. It wasn't a reduction. We didn't lose to 224 positions. We had 224 positions placed in this complement management program so that we made sure 
that any of those that we filled did not impact the general fund. So it, it's common sense management. Uh, there was an attempt yesterday to kind of distort that, but all this is is making prudent use of every available dollar. In 15 seconds or less, these are important positions when we're talking about uh, where people's health and safety are involved. Well, DEP's mission is to protect Pennsylvania's environment and public health. And a, a majority of the positions that we've lost over the last decade have been on-the-ground inspectors and permit writers. So imp service impacts to the regulated community and our ability to go out and inspect the facilities that we regulate. Uh, we, we've got to fill as many of these positions as we can and build back in the agency. Pennsylvania Secretary of the Department of Environmental Protection, John Quigley. Secretary Quigley, thank you very much for being with us today. Always a pleasure. Coming up uh, on tomorrow's program, telemedicine is one of our topics.